it is an active breathing protocol. So what's nice about it is you're doing something, which is very helpful when, you know, sitting and doing nothing is feels uncomfortable. You're doing something with your breath. You're actively modulating your breath, but the result is a very, very peaceful state of mind. I think that, I mean, one of the results of sitting meditation that we seek is to be calmer and in a more peaceful, settled, quiet state of mind. And that is also what can happen through the breathing. I'm Casey Main, author, writer, and party girl turned spiritual junkie. And I'm dedicated to helping you better understand the most important and most complicated relationship you'll ever be in, the one you have with yourself. It's the only relationship that you're in for the entirety of your time here, and it affects every single aspect of your life. Yet it is the one most often overlooked. This podcast is here to help you explore that relationship. Get to know yourself so you can accept yourself, heal yourself, and become a better version of yourself. So let's get to it. Welcome back to another episode of the Better You Podcast. I am your host, Casey Main, And as always, I just want to start off by thanking you very much for being here. I know that there are a lot of different things pulling at everybody's time, including like a million podcasts. So the fact that you're listening to mine just really, it means a lot to me. And I know I've just started to say that in the beginning of every single episode, but it's true. And I don't know, you know, who's listening to which episode. So I just, I want you guys to know how much I do appreciate and, and value. And I'm just so grateful for the fact that you guys are listening because I am enjoying doing this. I want to continue to do it. I love having these conversations and finding cool guests and cool topics and all of that. And so I want to continue to do it. And, um, I am trying to grow the show. So I actually, as I record this intro, I am live on Instagram, which is something I, I think I've maybe done once in my life, um, but not something I'm super comfortable with. But as I was just saying on the Instagram live, I've started to learn a lot more about like digital marketing and kind of how to get your stuff seen and grow and all that stuff. And I mean, it's no joke. It's like a freaking science. Like if you're putting stuff out into the interwebs and just assuming people are are seeing it. They're not like, it's just amazing the way the social media algorithms work. And then who even knows how the podcasting algorithms work and all that stuff. So I do know that doing videos and going live helps. So my plan is to maybe go live while I record these intros to give everybody a little bit of a behind the scenes look. So if you're not already following the podcast on Instagram, then please do. We're at the better you podcast and, um, you should be able to see a lot more just behind the scenes stuff of me attempting to learn how to do this whole podcasting thing. So I'm doing my part to grow it. And if you guys want to help me, there's two big ways you can do that. So one is leaving a rating or review on whatever podcasting uh, app you're listening on. Um, I know it's really easy on Apple podcasts. That's how I listen to podcasts. So I'm not sure about the other ones, but if you have the ability to leave a rating or a review, if you can do that, that would really just help a lot. And then the second way you can help is always by just sharing the show. So send it to friends or post it on your socials or whatever, anything in that regard will absolutely help. So I will continue to go live and do videos, even though I'm super uncomfortable. And if you guys share the show and rate the show, then we can all grow it together and continue to learn more about ourselves. 
So I'm very excited. I know I say that like in every episode also about this conversation, but this is a really good one. So if you guys have been following the podcast for a while, you know, I have like a little bit of a nerdy side and that I like the, um, like science and research and, and data. And especially when that intersects with more of the like personal development world. So today's conversation is absolutely falls in that world. And it's like the perfect follow-up to last week's episode. So if you haven't listened to that one yet, definitely do. It's with Michael Melberg and he's got a great new book out on productivity, but he really takes this just very refreshing and holistic view of productivity. That is not all about like, go, go, go hustle and grind. It's more, okay, let's look at like what really makes you happy and what's really important in your life. And then how do you make sure you're dedicating time to that? And then ultimately that will make you more productive. And that message just falls totally in line. What with what today's guest talks about in terms of, um, what really makes us happy. So before we jump into her bio and what we're going to be talking about, um, a couple other episodes I recommend that are related to this topic. Um, if you haven't listened to episode 43, brainwash yourself to make better decisions with Dr. Austin Perlmutter, that's a good one. Cause he, in that conversation, we talk about empathy and what that does for your brain in terms of decision-making. And then today's guest talks about compassion and happiness and how that is intersecting like with what's going on in our brain. So just kind of relevant. So if you're into today's episode, then definitely go back and check out episode 43. And then we also, today we talk about mindfulness-based meditation. And if you want to go way back to the beginning of the year, episode 23, meditation to reduce stress, increase focus, and rest your brain with Monty Shalmali, um, is all about mindfulness-based meditation. And he actually created a great meditation app that is mindfulness based meditation. So it's a great app. It's a great meditation. We kind of talk about today. I have a really hard time doing it, but if you, if you try it and it's your thing, then it has like incredible benefits. Okay. So let's go ahead and learn a little bit more about our guest today. Emma Sapala is the science director of Stanford University's Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education and the author of The Happiness Track, How to Apply the Science of Happiness to Accelerate Your Success. She has spoken at TEDx Sacramento, TEDx Hayward, and companies like Google, Apple, Facebook, Ernst & Young, and a United States congressional hearing. Her articles have been featured in Harvard Business Review, The Washington Post, Business Insider, Psychology Today, Fast Company, Forbes, Huffington Post, Mind Body Green, Greater Good Science Center, and Scientific American Mind. She's been a repeat guest on Good Morning America, and her work and research have also been featured in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Chicago Tribune, NPR, Boston Globe, the Atlantic, Vogue, Elle, CBS News, Oprah Magazine, U.S. World and News Report, Cosmopolitan, ABC News, Business Insider, Self, Glamour, and the World Economic Forum. So pretty much anywhere and everywhere online. And she was also featured in the documentary film, The Altruism Revolution and What You Do Matters. Her research on yoga-based breathing for military veterans returning from war in Iraq and Afghanistan was highlighted in the documentary, Free the Mind. And in this episode, we discuss how and why she got into the field of studying happiness and compassion, why college students are at the highest risk of mental health issues, the results of a recent study that tested the effects of mindfulness, emotional intelligence, and sky breath meditation on stress among college students, 
why breathing practices are so effective in changing our emotional state, what happens in our brain and in our bodies when we suppress our emotions, the benefits of sky breath meditation and how you can learn it, the reason we have a stress response and what's happening to our bodies when we are constantly in it, our tendency to tie happiness to feelings of excitement instead of feelings of calm, and the benefits of choosing calm over choosing excitement. All right, so this is a great conversation. I will tell you we had some technical difficulties connecting and we only had an hour. So unfortunately we have to kind of cut off the conversation a little bit abruptly. I could have talked to her for hours. Maybe we'll be able to convince her to come back on and, and talk about more stuff in the future, but it's still, it's just, this is a great one. It's just jam packed with like all these golden nuggets. So we are just going to go ahead and jump into this conversation. I want to start with your, your role. So you are the science director of Stanford center for compassion and altruism research and education. I just, I love that. I love that that even exists, but explain a little bit about what that means. What is the center? And then if we could go back a little bit and kind of look at like how you got there, like a little bit of your background. Sure. Yeah. The center for compassion and altruism research and education at Stanford is a center that has been focused on supporting uh, and um, supporting and conducting a research on compassion and then promoting it um, in various ways through conferences and so forth. Really, I think the center has played a, a major role in inspiring and producing more research on compassion and getting the word out. So um, we produced a book called the Oxford Handbook of Compassion Science, which is a, an academic handbook sort of summarizing a lot of the research that's out there. And um, just to kind of bring that out, it was uh, in part co-founded or co-sponsored by the Dalai Lama. Oh, wow. With this idea of really trying to bring this out more to people, because if you look at the research, you know, compassion has so, is probably the greatest predictor of health, happiness. Mm -hmm and longevity that there is in the literature. And nobody knows this because every marketing agent out there is trying to tell you that in order to be happy, healthy, and live long, you need to buy or consume or whatever their stuff. But mm -hmm. actually that, no, actually compassion is the most predictive. Um, but of course, no one's going to make any money off that. Right, right. Because that's something we can all just do internally. Okay. So how do you define compassion? Because even when I think about it, I guess I'm having a hard time distinguishing between compassion and empathy. Yeah. Empathy is um, your ability to feel another person's emotion. So if you walk in the room, somebody's stressed, all of a sudden you're stressed. Uh, if you walk in the room, someone's sad um, and you can feel that. Uh, you walk in the room, someone's laughing hysterically and you're laughing and you don't even know what the joke was. Um, those are kind of examples of empathy. It's our internal ability to experience and feel other people's emotion. Compassion mm -hmm. is noticing another person's suffering, um, emotional suffering, physical suffering, and wishing to be of help in some manner. Ah, That's okay. the difference, scientifically speaking. And uh, you'd asked how I got to the center. I have been really intent in my whole sort of career of, to, of, uh, to think about what makes people happy. So I grew up in Paris, France, where um, 
everything is so easy and beautiful and tasty and yummy and all that. And, but people are really grumpy and always focused on the negative and what's going wrong. And so then I moved to the U S for college and I saw, okay, here are people are much more positive and it was such a breath of fresh air. Um, but then I also noticed, gosh, like, why are they running? Like, where are they running to? Why are they working so hard? It like consumes them, you know, and there's some suffering mm-hmm. there from that, from that burnout and, and just constantly be, you know, trying to, prove something. Right. So then I thought, okay, what is happiness? Then I moved to China after college. And I saw that people were, I saw people who had literally nothing, very, very little, and yet had this joy and this sort of resilience. And I thought, wow, like, what is it that they have, you know, but there was also an emptiness there. There was a spiritual emptiness. Um, there was a, because it was very consumerist focused. So I sort of came back and, and just have focused my career on thinking about what makes us happy what makes us resilient? What, what are the reasons that, what are the ways that our lives can be most meaningful in the short time that we have on the planet? And so that's what sort of the big picture focus of my studies. But then I've run a number of studies, particularly on well-being, meditation, breathing practices, and so forth for well-being for students, for veterans and others. Okay. I love that. And this might be I don't know. It might be a silly question, but okay. So studying something like happiness from a scientific perspective, which is all, you know, testing and all just process and great, but how do you, how do you go about doing that? Because isn't happiness essentially always going to be self-reported in which case we've got our own, whatever internal biases we've got going on. That'll just always make our answers like subjective. Absolutely. So first of all, happiness is subjective, right? So some people experience happiness as emotions like excitement and thrill and like sort of high intensity. Other people experience happiness as emotions like calm, peaceful. So really your definition of happiness for yourself is going to be different according to who you are. But in terms of measuring it, we really, what I've been trying to do is sort of look at populations that are in stressful situations or, or have, you know, and how can we help buffer that so that they have less of the anxiety, the depression, the negative emotions we know are associated, mostly people associate those with suffering and not wanting to feel those kinds of emotions. And we wanted to see, is there a way we can help with that? So we just ran a study at Yale with undergraduates. And we know that 18 to 25 year olds are most at risk for mental health issues. Um, ha- the suicide is the second leading cause of death in that population, which is crazy, the seventh for um, other age groups. And uh, so we wanted to, so we looked at uh, different well-being interventions and um, randomly assigned students to either a control condition that had no intervention or to one of three interventions. One was a mindfulness-based stress reduction, which you most undoubtedly have heard of. Um, the other is was called Sky Campus Happiness, which is a breathing protocol that I had studied before. And another one was Emotional Intelligence Paradigm. And so a program. So we had them, the students take these classes during the course of a semester over eight weeks. And then we looked pre and post at changes in self-reported anxiety, depression, stress, um, but also the, on the positive side, mindfulness, positive emotions, social connection, um, and so forth. And so we actually, uh, we didn't uh, have any physiological measurements for this study, but what we did do is we compared each of the well-being programs to the control group. And at the end of the semester, took a look at 
which students actually benefited most, right? And so what we found was that, interestingly, we found that the mindfulness group did not have any significant changes compared to the control group. Um, and the emotional intelligence had one improvement in mindfulness. And then the, the breathing protocol had the most. Um, it improved stress, depression, and mental health, mental health days, and then improved positive emotion and um, social connection as well as mindfulness. So that's the latest study we ran. Okay. So I want, I want to dive into that a little bit more, but first, um, I, I did. That's so interesting. I had just like a little aha moment where you say like happiness is subjective and that's, that's true. So I guess then you could look at happiness two ways, like testing or researching what makes someone happy or what decreases, like you said, those factors that we know aren't making people happy, like the stress, anxiety, all of that. So that's, that's an interesting way to look at it. Has the, has the 18 to 25 at highest risk for mental health, has that always been the case or is that more recent? This is such an insightful question. So the last decade has seen a steep decline in mental health for 18 to 25 year olds. You can stipulate a lot of reasons for that. Some people say it's, you know, they're the ones who've grown, grown up with technology, grown up with cell phone, yeah. you know, um, various reasons. Also looking at our planet. I mean, they've landed on a planet where our environment is crumbling, right? And so there, <laughs> there are many reasons that there could be here and look at around what's happening right now in the pandemic, politically, um, with racial tensions, et cetera. There are, you know, there are a lot of reasons for that age group to look around and be like, where have I landed? What is going on yeah. here? So, you know, we could stipulate about a number of things, but yes, it's been a steep decline over the last 10 years. and. To the point where campuses are not able to keep up with the demand for counseling and psychiatric services. Um, they're overwhelmed. They're trying to hire more staff. They're not meeting students' needs. And that's why we ran the study thinking, hey, wait a second. You know, why don't we be, we're teaching people to think, we're teaching students to think and to write and to, you know, sort of these life skills, but we're not teaching them how to live. We're not teaching yes. them how to regulate their own emotions, how to build psychological resilience. And that's why we wanted to see, can we offer these kinds of programs? And what we found is, yeah, you can through, you know, the, the, in particular through that Sky Campus Happiness program, you can build resilience. So that was one of the motivating I, factors. I love that so much because that you're right that if you look at the age group that's in college today, and so it's probably been, I'm probably... I guess I'm more than 10 years out of college. That's upsetting to realize. But <laughs> if you look at, at that age group and the world they've grown up in, it is it is very different. And, and that's just so sad that then they're called like, well, I look back on my college experience and it was just this kind of stress-free. I mean, I had some stress that came with school and all that, obviously, but it was just this fun. I was, if anything, oblivious to whatever was wrong with the world at that point in time. And it was this carefree, fun time, but I can see how that wouldn't be the case. And probably even these younger generations, like leading into college is probably just in those college years or 18 to 25, that they have the awareness of whatever they've got going on internally. But I mean, they're, they're growing up on their phones and on this technology. And then you look at the cyberbullying and then the physiological effects of all the screen time and not being outside and all of that maybe yeah. just like culminates in the 18 to 25 where they are like, Whoa, I'm feeling it. Yeah, absolutely. And when you look at the stats on Gen Z, they are more aware, they care more, they're more values driven and less materially driven. 
And so they're not being necessarily fed what they need. They're not necessarily surround. Like they only care about brands that make a difference that kind of, mm-hmm. they have this incredible perspective. Um, and yet they're also surrounded with this sort of very materialistic world that is in many ways right now, looking at the news cycle devoid of values, right? Yes. So. Yes. Okay. Um, all right. Before we, we hop into the study, cause I'm interested in what were the th- more about the three different methods. Um, the Sky Campus Happiness Program. So this is a program that that goes to various universities and, and college campuses and implements this uh, mindfulness or compassion or uh, breath work. Like, just it's available on the campus. Um, it's offered through a nonprofit uh, called International Association for Human Values, and uh, yeah, it's it's a class that incorporates a lot of breath work, which I can talk to you more about regarding the science of that. Um, but also factors like, uh, some positive psychology, social connection and belonging is like a huge outcome and, um, part of the protocol service. So they actually do some community service as well. And then there are some, some emotional and some emotional intelligence skills that are built into the program. So it's very comprehensive. And that's why we think we probably got so many results was because of the comprehensive nature of the program that hits a lot of things, not just mindfulness or not just this or that, but like a lot all of the things that research shows are um, predictive of psychological health well-being. Oh, I love that. I just wish that had been around when I was in college, and I don't know that I would have opted to take that course. I hope that I would have, but <laughs> I, now at this point in my life, I can just imagine the difference it would make to have been taught those tools and incorporate them just into part of your, your daily life, like your non-negotiables that you know you need in order to stay happy and energized and all that stuff to, to get those like implanted in your life at that young age, like the difference that could have made for me, you know, up until this point, I, I just can't even imagine like that's, that's really cool. Um, okay. All right. So I'm curious about the three different methods. So you said there was the mindfulness stress reduction, the sky meditation, which was a lot of breath work, I believe. And then the emotional intelligence. So let's start with like, what was the mindfulness stress reduction? Like what did that program entail? Yeah. So mindfulness based stress reduction or MBSR for short is some, is this program It's an eight week meditation program that has been studied and There are many types of meditation, and this program particularly focuses on mindfulness-based stress reduction. So mindfulness, uh, mindfulness meditation, which is, you know, a a meditation that involves present moment awareness from moment to moment without judgment. Mm -hmm. And the program has been shown to be beneficial in some populations. It's also been shown to have mixed findings depending on the population. And here we think that the reason that there were no results that showed significance was perhaps because it's not so tailored to university populations as much as the other programs. That might be one of the reasons. The other reason being that it's uniquely focused on one um, practice, which is mindfulness meditation, maybe some loving kindness meditation. Uh, And if that doesn't click with someone, then the whole program doesn't necessarily have that impact, right? So um, the other program was an emotional intelligence program, which was uh, taught skills of how to regulate your emotions. It didn't have any practice component to it, but it had sort of a teaching a skills for how you can handle difficult emotions. And um, it, that program 
improved mindfulness. That was sort of interesting, <laughs> um, but probably because it helped people be aware of their emotional state. So not right, really probably right. improved mindfulness. Yeah. That that's very interesting. Um, emotional intelligence, just being taught. I think every, every student, every human everywhere should be taught this yes. at some point in time comes more naturally to some than others, but mindfulness, especially like the mindfulness meditations. And I've, I've, I'm in and out on trying to have a meditation practice and what type really works for me, but that I find that very difficult. So I'm, I'm not surprised not to devalue it because I, I believe it's extremely valuable, but I think that's, that's hard to do. Um, especially Mm -hmm. if you're not doing other stuff with it or before it, like, I feel like that's like an advanced level of self-work being able to really sit in those mindfulness, present moment awareness meditations. Yeah, no, I think you're right. It is very challenging. And, you know, I, I have a sort of a theory of why it's been so popular in the research because, um, researchers, scientists are very much focused in their work on observing things objectively and testing them in a, you know, supposedly in a non-judgmental way and so forth, which is exactly what mindfulness meditation is, right? So it really clicks with scientists because it keeps them in the same kind of framework that they're in for the rest of their uh, work. But I don't know if it will always click for everyone. That's what the research shows is that it's really beneficial for some people. And in other cases, it's not that much different from any other kind of thing. So it's, the data is mixed. Um, and I think that for some people, for example, the veterans that I worked with, so when you have high, high anxiety sitting with your eyes closed and observing your mind is very anxiety provoking, or you become so aware of that anxiety that it's almost, um, unbearable, more anxiety. <laughs> unbearable. Yeah. So yeah. we noticed that we, so when we want, I wanted to, uh, with my team study, interventions for veterans with trauma, because we know that traditional interventions like therapy or medication, um, don't in many cases don't work for them. And so, um, we had considered mindfulness, but then some of the, our colleagues at the VA had said the veterans are dropping out. And we thought, you know, for high anxiety, that's not necessarily the best first approach. Meditation is amazing. And there are many different types of meditation. Mm-hmm. Um, can we try something else? And that's when we tried the sky breath meditation, which is also what is taught in the sky campus happiness. And, um, we tried that in, in a study with veterans and it was very, and did, it worked um, there too. Well, it was actually surprisingly successful. So after one week of them learning the sky breath meditation, they, um, did not, their anxiety normalized. So they actually didn't qualify on paper as having post-traumatic stress or anxiety normalized. And one month later and one year later, they were still, the anxiety was still normalized, suggesting sort of a permanent improvement or, or shift for them. In fact, many of them went back to school, you know, um, got married, were able to make, keep a job. Like they were in their basements before that, you know, drinking wow. and smoking pot to just try and make it through the day, through the night. And um, so that was really um, incredible. And you'd asked about physiological sort of changes. And we actually measured uh, physiological changes in their startle response. So you'll notice if you're feeling very anxious, haven't slept or just stressed about stuff, you hear a loud noise, you're more likely to startle. Mm -hmm. If you have post-traumatic stress, um, the startle is so, can be so intense, like a noise you wouldn't even notice Like they're diving under the table and cursing, you know? So um, we, we measured startle pre and post um, and found that after 
doing the program, their startle response was very much improved. That's um, amazing. Yeah. Okay. So, all right. So let's dive into to what is it? What is sky breath meditation? Uh, sky breath meditation. So let me just back up a little. Why was breathing so effective? Why are breathing practices so effective? So breathing actually is one of the fastest ways for you to shift your emotional state. Um, for example, you'll notice that for different emotions, your breath changes and has different rhythms. Have you noticed that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like anxiety, stress, anger, your breath changes, right? Um, I'll notice like I'll hold my breath. Um, sometimes when I'm feeling anxious or stressed or upset, like if I go into any kind of negative emotion, I'll sometimes catch myself like holding my breath and then I'm like, breathe. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. And then other examples are like sobbing or laughing, like Or if you watch little kids running in the sprinkler in the summer, their little bellies just going like when they're happy, there's such deep breaths, right? But the interesting part is that, uh, and a study looked at this, they looked at different emotions and whether people's breathing changed. And they found that, yeah, for every emotion, the breath is actually very different. It looks different scientifically. Um, And so then they had different participants come in for the second part for another study. And they just gave them the breathing instructions that corresponded to the emotion. And then they asked them how they felt. What do you think that they uh, felt? That they were, it, the breathing evoked the emotions. Exactly. Exactly. And this is huge. Like, this is so huge. Because if you think about it, like, what have we, what have we been taught in our society to do with our emotions, our big negative emotions? What have, like, from we childhood on? Stuff them down. Huh? Stuff them, them down. down. Exactly. Them. Just suppress, right? Everybody has learned this. And so... And I can tell you from research, what the research shows happens when you suppress emotions is that they get more intense internally. Mm. So for example, anger raises your heart rate and blood pressure generally, and sort of evokes that fight or flight response in your body. But when you suppress it and pretend not to be feeling it, those systems go haywire, even stronger. And at the level of the brain, the emotion centers are activated much, much more, much stronger. And so it's just, it's self-defeating. And the other thing is that usually we suppress our emotions because we want to maintain our relationship with the person we're talking to, Mm -hmm. but that person's heart rate increases when we suppress our anger. That's what they can like feel it like that. Isn't there something, and this is maybe a little off the wall, but, um, that are the energy of our heart can be monitored or, or felt or seen like some crazy number of feet, like outside of our body. That's really interesting. I am not familiar with that, but I am familiar with the fact that when two people are speaking in sync, their heart rate and they're, they're really connecting their heart rates start to synchronize, um, wow. and their breathing starts to synchronize, which is really amazing. Um, but what happens with, with suppression is that the other person doesn't intellectually know what's wrong, but all of a sudden they're not feeling comfortable around the person. You know, we, we've all had that where we're with someone and all of a sudden we're like, I just don't feel comfortable around this person. Yeah. And I don't know why. Yeah. Chances are that they're suppressing and we register, our body registers inauthenticity as threat. Right. Oh, so, that is so interesting. Okay. Because I, I noticed that around certain people, like, and, and we talk about this, like, it'll be like, Oh, you're, you have bad energy. You're giving off a bad vibe. Like, but then we never really look at, okay, what does that mean? But you can feel it around certain people. And I think for a long time, I thought like, I find it's hard to figure out, okay, is it me? Do I feel uncomfortable around this person? Or am I picking up on something within them, which is kind of like what you just said, like that 
they've got something going on and I just feel it. Yeah. Your, your, your physiology is responding and your brain's trying to figure out what's going on because our physiology responds way faster than our intellect can catch up with it. So that's one of the things. So going back to the breathing thing, what we've learned about regulating our emotions is not good for us, not good for our health. And it's not good for our relationships. It basically just doesn't, it doesn't work well. The other technique that psychologists recommend is sort of reframing sort of cognitive reframing, which is think about the situation from a different perspective. And that's fine and good if you're talking about being upset about a parking ticket and sort of reframing it like, okay, I'm going to get home faster because I parked there. So I'll just consider this a donation to the city, which I kind of like the city, you know? So whatever you're thinking, but what happens when you have a big, strong emotion? It happens if you have big sadness, big anxiety, big anger. What then? You can't talk your way out of it because literally the parts of your brain that evoke those emotions, they take over and the prefrontal cortex, which is your, your logical reasoning areas of the brain are deactivated in many ways, which is why it's very hard to talk our way out of difficult emotions, big mm-hmm. emotions. Okay. So that's sort of the backdrop. So what do we do for those big emotions? This is where that study I just talked about with breathing is so powerful because through our breathing, we bypass our brain and we go right into our physiology, calm ourselves down. When we're calm, we can think about things from a different perspective. Does that make sense? Yes. And we've sort of overlooked breathing, especially in the research, because it's just this thing that we do. And yet it has this powerful impact on our physiology and accordingly really can impact our mind. Other really simple things about breathing, when you inhale, your heart rate, blood pressure increase. When you exhale, they decrease, they slow down. What does that mean? When you lengthen your exhales, you start to calm down your physiology. A super simple exercise, you know, is just to close your eyes and just breathe in for four and out for eight and to do that for five minutes and then notice how you feel. Guaranteed, you're going to feel different Um, with anxiety or anything like that. This can really help. But anyway, so that is some of the backdrop, some of the research on breathing and the sky breath meditation protocol is a comprehensive, probably the most comprehensive breathing protocol I have ever encountered. And it had, and perhaps that for that reason, it has this incredible impact on anxiety, depression, stress. So our study at Yale, there was, uh, was replicated by another study that actually came out of Harvard and the university of Arizona, the same month as our study with the same findings as us but they also had some physiology. So they found that after practicing the sky breath meditation, part, uh, participants actually showed less stress response in anticipation of a stressful event um, than, than people who'd just gone through a cognitive behavioral pr- traditional kind of um, well-being stress reduction program. Yeah. And they also found that those results were maintained and strengthened one, three months later. So. Wow. Okay. So that's like, if you know you've got to do something stressful that would normally cause anxiety leading up to that, that was reduced. Yeah. Yes. It, 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 well, here's an example. You have an interview or something and you're, you're kind of stressed about it, right? So right beforehand, your heart rate increases, right? You have to get on stage to give a talk. Mm-hmm. You, you know, your whole physiology can get activated with stress, right? That's what we're, ta- that's what we're talking about here. And so they found that after doing the sky breath meditation, those who participated in the program showed less of a response than they had, they would have prior to the program. 
Okay. So what all did the program involve? Like, is this something they did on a daily basis, Mm -hmm. weekly? Like how, how intense was it? And like, what all did it entail? Yeah. Good question. So the sky breath meditation can be learned over three consecutive sessions. So over three days, like a couple hours a day. And, um, that's how it's usually taught or so over three days. And then you get a, a home practice that you can do as short, it's like 20 minutes, um, on a daily basis or, um, however often you want to do it, I guess. So, um, that's, so our program looked over eight weeks because we wanted to look over the course of a semester, mm-hmm. but the program out of the Harvard, Arizona study, um, only looked at the short program and still saw those like really huge effects. Okay. So, all right. So you learn it and it takes, it takes a decent amount of time to learn it, but then as far as a daily practice, it's only like 20 minutes or so. Exactly. Yep. And I, I personally got interested in this because I was in New York city during nine 11. I just moved there a couple of days prior, in fact. And, uh, after that, I was, I had incredible anxiety every morning at 8.30 a.m. It was just, it would take over my entire body. Mm. And um, I tried a lot of things. I would go to Bikram yoga like every day. <laughs> I tried mindfulness. I tried with all my heart uh, at the time to practice. But I, I, I had that experience of too much anxiety to be able to sit still. And, um, and it wasn't until I learned a breathing protocol, this breathing, the sky breath meditation that I realized, oh, like I can calm myself down. And so that's inspired some of the research studies that I conducted to see, okay, well, this, will this work in other populations that have anxiety and stress? This is so cool. Is there, can those of us who are not on a college campus learn it? Like how does the the average person learn how to do it? Yeah. The average person can learn it through a nonprofit called art of living. So it's just like a, it's like artofliving.org. I think it's just a it's a nonprofit. Yeah, I've heard of them actually. Yeah, and then but veterans actually can take a program through an organization called Project Welcome Home Troops, veterans and active military and military families. So that's really cool. Um and then there are even programs for kids. There's a oh. program in school it's called Sky Schools uh where they they work with schools um uh, Sky Kids, Sky Schools and then there's the Sky Campus Happiness. Um there's even a prison program. Can it be taught? I'm hoping yes, especially these days. Can it be taught virtually or is this something that your city where you are has to have some kind of a program? It's taught virtually at the moment. So I know that the Sky Campus Happiness people, they have been teaching a lot online at different universities because right now a lot of universities are really focusing on mental health and well-being. And um, yeah, so it can be taught virtually. Okay. So do you think that a, a breathing program like this, like for those of us who struggle to do any kind of mindfulness based meditation or meditation in general, mm-hmm. will a, doing a breathing program have kind of the same benefits? Like, can we feel good about, okay, well, I'll, I can do my breathing exercises for 20 minutes every day. I can't meditate. Like, does that, does that suffice for our mental health? I I think so. Um, I think there's a reason it's called sky breath meditation because it is an active breathing protocol. So what's nice about it is you're doing something, which is very helpful when, you know, sitting and doing nothing is feels uncomfortable. You're doing something with your breath. You're actively modulating your breath. Um, but the result is a very, very peaceful 
state of mind. And so what we're finding is that, you know, mindfulness is one of the things that has increased through the study, through the practice. So um, I think that, I mean, one of the results of sitting meditation that we seek is to be calmer and in a more peaceful, settled, quiet state of mind. And that is also what can happen through the breathing. And then if you, you know, but there's no reason not to also meditate. I mean, what I found is that after practicing the breathing for a while, I was suddenly able to meditate. So yeah, just thinking that, yeah, it might have the effect of all of a sudden now you you enjoy or are able to meditate exactly because you've already kind of done that base work of, of kind of calming your mind down. Yes. And in fact, if you look at the, I mean, these traditions all come from, you know, the yogic tradition from India and the traditional way of doing things is first you do some yoga asanas in order to get the, you know, get the wiggles out of your body. Right. And then you do the breathing gets kind of gets the wiggles out of your mind and then you meditate, you know, so there's that sort of sequencing that is traditional, but I think that the sky breath meditation is just efficient for these times when we don't have a lot of time, we need stuff that works. We need it to work fast. (laughs) You know what I mean? That's sort of where we're at right now. And in that sense, I think this is a very efficient practice and effective. Okay. I love that. And that's actually the perfect segue into talking about your book, the happiness track, which, which talks about kind of our, our incorrect views of what makes us happy and kind of touching back to, you mentioned this, like the go, go, go and how busy we are and all of that versus what science shows actually makes us happy. So, um, I want to talk about that a little bit. Let's start with some of our, our outdated theories of success. Like what do we what has been kind of the the running mantra of happiness and success that actually is not working? Yeah. So there are a number of them, but I would say the main one and one we see every day all around us is this idea that in order to get things done, you need to be busy, 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 go, 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 stressed, stressed, stressed. You know, we complain about stress, but we also worship at the temple of stress, right? We, we feel like <laughs> this, you know, oh, I need to get stuff done. Let me drink like three more coffees or let me overschedule myself or wait till the last minute to get things done. There's this idea that in order to be productive, we have to have our adrenaline rushing uh, through our body. And then we also complain about burnout and being tired at 2 PM and being exhausted at five, 6 PM. It's like, why were you laying bricks? Were you doing hard physical labor? No, we're sitting at a computer, maybe doing some emails maybe doing some meetings, whatever. We're not supposed to be that tired, that exhausted. We're not supposed to have, you know, a lot of, um, a lot of modern diseases these days, diabetes and cancer and all that. They're linked to high inflammation in the body and stress is nothing Mm -hmm. but an inflammatory process. So what I'm saying is we have come to believe that in order to be successful, we need to constantly be in this sort of high adrenaline, high stress mode. And yet it is burning us out extremely fast. So we're only, there's a professor at Stanford called Bob Sapolsky who says, we're only supposed to feel stress five minutes in our life right before we die. And he's, he's an amazing guy. He wrote a book called why zebras don't get ulcers. Uh, (laughs) And he, uh, but his point is the stress response is there to save our life. It is only Mm -hmm. supposed to be there. Like there's an oncoming semi and you're in the middle of the road run. Like it's supposed to help, you know, rush the blood. It brushes the blood to your muscles. It boosts your immune system in case you're going to get wounded. Um, it helps you run faster. Your attention and memory becomes super clear and sharp. 
for those five minutes, right? To help save your life. But if you rely on your stress response all the time, you're burning out all those systems. Your immune system plummets, your attention and memory actually decrease in their ability. And just overall, you're burning through your body's resources, which is why there's fatigue, you know, and, and different kinds of uh, repercussions. Burnout is at 50% across industries right now. So that is not working for us, <laughs> if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. If, if you like, I can tell you what, what does work, what the research does show in comparison to that. Okay. Yes. I, I do want to know that. Um, and this might be partly answering that question, but I'm curious, like, is it a map? Cause I'm sure people listening right now and I find myself even doing it be like, okay, I know, but there are a certain number of things I have to get done mm-hmm. throughout a day to yeah. continue with work or life or whatever. So is it about the number of things we're doing or is it about kind of our, our, mindset while we're doing them and that we're doing them in this stressed out frantic way instead of in a kind of calmer, more peaceful manner. It's really about our approach. If you are in a calmer state of mind, you'll actually get more done. Mm. Um, here is, and you'll get it done better. And in a way you're more proud of, let me tell you. So we, we are always excited about everything. Everything's about excitement in the United States in particular. If you ask people to define happiness in the United States, they'll use words like excitement and thrill. If you ask people in East Asian countries, China, Japan, Korea, to define happiness, they will use words like calm and peaceful. So uh, all those words are positive emotions. We value excitement. We also value stress. We are always in this sort of high intensity mode in our lives. But guess what? All of that um, tunes into the all of that activates the fight or flight response, the stress response in your body, which is fine. I mean, there's nothing wrong with feeling excited. What I'm saying is that we're constantly relying on it. And we, you know, even we'll say like, oh, I'm so excited to talk on this podcast with you. I wouldn't be like, oh, I'm so calm to talk, you know, (laughs) even in our wording. But here's what happens. This is what the research shows happens when you are calmer, when your mind is calmer. One, your attention is much, much broader. You literally see more things physically. A research study with people who'd gone through a meditation retreat showed that they were actually able to perceive more images than others when shown consecutive images in a row really fast. Um, When you're calmer, so your attention is broader. Think about a day when you're stressed and walking down a hall or in a room with people, you probably don't even notice if somebody looks sad, if somebody looks flustered, if something's not going right. Why? Stress makes you focused on yourself first and foremost. And it also makes you very tunnel visioned. So you're less able to perceive it lowers your, therefore lowers your emotional intelligence. We've all been there where we've been stressed and we said the wrong thing. We sent the wrong email. We do things we regret later. Oh yeah. I did that just the other night. I was stressed and I just kept like snapping at my boyfriend while I was making dinner. And to the point, it wasn't until later in the night that I'm like, why was I so irritated at him? It had nothing to do with him, but I he, he's the one who got the brunt of it. And then I felt bad about it. See, that's so interesting. I mean, it's so, so insightful, right? Literally, all, most of our emotions, I would say, have nothing to do with what's going on and more with to do with the state of our mind. But that's maybe for a different conversation. Oh, well, um, no, I 100%. That's the whole reason this podcast exists is that essentially it comes down to our relationship with ourself and what we've got going on in terms of how we're perceiving the external world, how we're interacting with it, like all of it. Like, I'm very much on this mission and journey to kind of just bring it all back to self. Cause I think that's we're we're so in the society of pointing outward instead of like looking inward. 
That's so beautiful, Casey. And yeah, and so that's another reason with this calm, when you're calmer, you're also able to be a a better decision maker for the very Mm -hmm. reason we just described, right? Think about a big decision you need to make when you're feeling super stressed versus when you're feeling calm and peaceful. It's going to be a different outcome and the decision is going to be just as important. And so it's it's so, so um, useful. The other thing is that the number one trait CEOs look for across industries across countries in incoming employees is creativity, the ability to innovate, right? Makes sense. If you're going to beat the competition, you have to be innovative. Here's the problem is that when you're stressed, that's not when you come up with your best ideas. Mm -hmm. You'll notice that you come up with your best ideas when you're taking a walk, when you're outside, right before you go to sleep, when you're in the shower, these odd moments when we get these aha kind of ideas that come in our mind. Why? Because neuroscience research shows that those aha moments are most likely to come when our brain is in alpha wave mode, when it's in this sort of relaxed, it's not asleep, it's alert, but very calm. That is when those ideas, those creative insights come to you. And that is one of the most important skills in our life, whether you're trying to get your kids to eat vegetables or you're working on an innovative project for your work or your community or whatever, is to be able to access that creative part of yourself. And we can only do that when we're calmer. When you're calmer, you're also burn out less. You manage your energy. We all want more energy and we're burning it out so fast. And when you're calmer, you're not constantly in that fight or flight mode. You're in the rest and digest mode, which allows you to collect your resources, build your resources. Over time, you're not tired. It's 5, 6 p.m. You're not exhausted. And finally, I would say one of the last things with calmness is that it gives you more power. Think about two people coming up to a negotiation table. One is anxious for a result, hasn't slept, is sweating. The other one could just walk away, cool as a cucumber. That's Mm -hmm. the person who has all the power. Similarly, if you're in a room, there's a fire, there's an emergency, there's a group of people, and maybe among that group of people, there's a boss, there's a appointed leader, right? But who is the person everyone will follow? They're going to follow the person who is calm and collected. That is actually the leader, regardless of whether that person is the boss or not. So, so much to calmness that we have not realized. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, you, I've encountered these, some calm people in my time and I always think, Oh God, that's like so great. Like they feel like, Oh, that looks like just such a peaceful life. And you're right there. They don't get all stressed. And there is this leadership power quality uh, about them because they're not all like all over the place. But I feel like it's tough because our culture really values someone who is extroverted and charismatic and has a lot of personality. You know what I mean? Like that, those are things our, our society tends to view as, and probably because we value excitement, like more fun and whatever. So yes, I, I don't know. Part of me is like, Oh, if I like just become this super calm person, I'm going to be viewed as, as boring. <laughs> so great, great point. And this is not the case at all. So just cause you're calm, actually, if you're calm, you're more charismatic. Why? When we're stressed, our mind is all over the place. And when our mind is all over the place, we are not present. And if you look at the research on charisma, you will see that every single one of the traits of someone who is charismatic can be learned, can be trained. And it has everything to do with your ability to be empathic, to be enthusiastic, to meet eye contact, to speak to your audience the way that they can hear you. Um, and, and all of those and, and a number of other traits too, but all of them have entirely and only to do with one thing, which is the ability to be fully present, to be mm. fully present. 
We live in a world where almost no one is fully present, where people's minds are wandering constantly, where they're being interrupted or interrupting themselves in order to look at their technology. When was the last time someone listened to you? 100%, right? Even your partner or spouse, are they really fully there all the time? So when someone is fully present, that makes them charismatic. And you can only be fully present when your mind is calm. And to your point, like some people will talk about, oh, I met this person like Bill Clinton or somebody, and they have a reputation of being highly charismatic. They made me feel like I was the only person in the room. How do they do that? Complete presence. And to your other point about the charisma thing too, is that you can be calm in your mind and still be enthusiastic in your words and still be fun. It just means you're not also frazzled. It means you're not torn apart inside um, by your stress and your anxiety. Do you see that? You can still be, I have a friend, you know, she's a performer and she said, oh, well now I just don't have stage fright, but I perform even better. Yeah. Cause it's like an inner calm that mm-hmm. allows you to be more aware and, and have better reactions externally. So that inner calmness gives you that, that awareness to then still be charismatic or whatever on the, on the outside. That's interesting. Okay. i never thought of it like that. Okay. So in your book, you outline all these different ways to become more calm um, which I'm not going to give away because I want people to buy the book. Um, so let's just end with you telling everybody um, where they can learn more about you and your work and get the book, even the the center that you work for, like all of that. Sure. Um, so I have a website, emmaseppala.com, E-M-M-A-S-E-P-P-A-L-A.com, where you have information on my book and um, articles that I've written on the topics we've talked about and so forth. And I also have all the social media handles and, um, the center, uh, at Stanford is the center for compassion and altruism research and education, uh, at Stanford university. Um, and I'm also at Yale. I teach at the Yale school of management and I'm the faculty director for the women's leadership program there for executives. That is amazing. And I will link to all of that in the show notes. Thank you so much for coming on. This is just, I love talking about this stuff. And then it's so interesting to hear it from a, from a science research perspective. So I just, I really very much appreciate it. Thank you, Casey. Yeah, it was really fun to talk to you. All right, that is it for this week. Thank you again so much for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation or have been enjoying the show, then please rate and review and share with your friends, share on your socials, just share, share, share so we can grow the show and keep doing this. It's just, it's a lot of fun. I'm loving it. And I hope you guys are as well. Make sure you're following us on the socials. I'm going to be trying to do a lot more fun stuff there. We'll see if I stick to it. Hopefully I will. Um, we are on Facebook and Instagram at the better you podcast. And I think that's it. Any feedback from me, you guys can always reach me at the better you podcast at gmail.com. And thank you again for listening. Hope you have a wonderful week.